You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers. I was 17. I got my first tattoo, which is... The Dodge logo from 1973, which is my, I have a 73 charger. So that's like, that's Mopar. That's me, you know, then like four weeks later, we were having another tattoo party. And because I was hosting it, it was my house. The guy was like, Hey, you get free work again. And I was like, I don't know what I want. Like, I just got like the best tattoo ever, (laughs) you know? Uh, And (laughs) my girlfriend at the time was wearing a shirt from this local band called Pennywise, not the punk band, some other local band with the same name. And the, and the shirt was a son that was like, had a face in it. It was like snarling. And this is like five 30, six 30 in the morning. We'd been partying since probably nine the night before. And uh, my buddy goes, that would be really cool, but if it was your face. And I was like, yeah! <laughs> so I just went. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of 2020. I'm Siobhan Cronin, here as always with my compatriots, my cohorts, Benny Goodman and Corey Peza. How's it going, guys? It's, it's going, going great. well. Benny is oddly demure, as he always is during our intros, because don't worry, he's going to blow up the microphone later. But back again, part two, go back and listen to part one if you haven't yet. Jason Leckberg, we continue our conversation, talk more about his band, some of his other experiences in the industry. Yeah, you can learn what a producer does. We don't know. (laughs) A lot of people don't know, as we've learned. Jason is very, very much an anomaly because he's so hyper-intelligent and he uses very, very highbrow ways to explain everything from um, cryptocurrency to um, how a producer interacts with a band, especially with a singer that doesn't know what they're doing. Um, But beyond that, also how marketing can be employed to really build your brand and hammer it home. You're using your NPR voice for this one. It's kind of like the difference in Jason's voice and, and his band because he goes from like, you know, how I normally talk to this. And it's very, it's, it's strange, yeah. but also different. But you're lulling people into a false sense of security because that is not how this episode is going to sound shortly after you hear this intro that's going to happen in a couple seconds on 2020 with Jason Lechberg. Hello and welcome to another episode of 2020. My name is Corey Peza. I'm here as always with my co-hosts, Siobhan Cronin. Hey. And Benny Goodman. Hello there, sir. Hello. Uh, And we're back for our second hour for the second time uh, with our good friend Jason Leckberg of Leckberg Enterprises. What? uh, We throw deuces? There's two twos. There's 2020. Deuce and deuce. 2020 in your (laughs) intro. I've lo- you've it. lost all momentum. I, I it's all nobody over. heard our guest Actually, name. if people aren't subscribed already, 
You should, but if you no, want to change the channel, no, but they're not going to as long as you're screaming in your I get mic, it too. I so. kind of want to change the channel at this point. The channel. Um, <laughs> aside from uh, being a marketing guru with uh, at Leckberg Enterprises and managing all sorts of great bands, or the product managing, I should say, all sorts of great bands like uh, you got Steel Panther, Guar, uh, Lost Symphony, the greatest band of all time. Uh, you're also in a pretty badass band called Nefarian, which I believe is going to actually be uh, doing some live performances relatively soon. Scary, but yeah, it's happening. June, uh, <laughs> June 12th and August 21st so far, both outdoor shows. But yeah, we're, we're going to take a run at it. So <laughs> let's see. <laughs> What's that process been like to kind of like navigate the, the ah. world of live shows right now? It's been tough. A lot of the venues here in New York, you know, because of where the the regulations are, they're just not even reopening yet because until we get to a certain capacity, it doesn't even matter COVID safe or not, they can't sell enough tickets to make it to not lose money being open. So they're having to stay closed. Uh, And a lot of the venues too, you know, we're still waiting to see what's going to happen with like rent and things like that, you know, whether they're going to end up having to pay the back rent for a year and a half. And if they do, that may be the end of a lot of venues, you know? So there's a lot of that that uh, is still unknown. So, you know, some of the bigger places that, that we would normally play, I'm, you know, called to talk to, and they're just like, we're not talking about this. We're not doing anything. We're not involved. Uh, and, and so, you know, a couple of promoters have started to like pick and choose things and these outdoor stages or something they're starting to do because they're like, okay, it feels like we'll be able to at least get that far. Uh, and, but everything is reduced capacity right now. I mean, I think the, the area we're playing is 300 cap, but currently we can only put 130 people. But if you're vaccinated, can't you just like laugh at all the people that could like, that are just going out and, 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 you know, putting themselves at risk and, and just be elitist about it and just be like, I can breathe in your space and I just have, you know, periodontics disease and that's all you're going to get from me. <laughs> periodontics disease. It's horrible. It smells. Have you ever been close to somebody like somebody who's like invading your space and you're just like, why are your gums rotting in my nose? Yeah. That's, it's what the, does that have to do with being one of my nose, She's probably had somebody at like a conductor or something that's like, you've missed the tritone. And you're just like, <laughs> like you missed brushing your teeth from last the, week. The, the pleasant like uh, consequences of everyone wearing masks now, though. You don't have to do that. Very true. Well, they should Very know true. that their breath smells. And I've, I have... Uh, Honestly, thought that I would not mind keeping masks in place for shows for that very reason. For sure. Well, how's to know that even if you're vaccinated, you can't continue to transmit? I mean, I think we'll probably still be finding out a lot of things down the road, you know? Yeah. yeah. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see how live shows function. Yeah. Definitely. So it's, you know, I mean, we're, we're, we're doing it because we want to try and we want to get out there and we want to play again. You know, I mean, honestly, we're not going to make that much money, but it's, it's about like, just getting out there and trying to make forward progress. Cause as a young band, I mean, we launched February 28th yes. of 2020. <laughs> Great timing. Yeah. And, right. and when the pandemic hit, we just kind of decided, Hey, like, you know, nobody, nobody needs to be trying to hear from us in the middle of this year. So we just went away, you know? Yeah. Well, maybe you can tell us about for the listeners that don't know the formation of the band, you know, all, some of the members, how you guys came together. Why should we started. care about you, Jason? <laughs> uh, I mean, the short answer to that is I don't know that you should. Uh, so I'm. I you are really... not good at marketing. Can we fire him? <laughs> like that's the worst answer ever. What do you? I don't know. That's... I'm kind of intrigued now. It's like reverse psychology, right? Is it? 
You know what it is? It's honesty. And I'm, I'm going to give you reasons. Well, that's even worse. I'm going to give you reasons. If you don't even believe in yourself, why the fuck would I believe in you? Oh, I didn't say anything about me not believing in myself. I have my own face tattooed on my arm. Oh, to the shoulder. <laughs> like, I, I believe in myself more than just about anything. I have my own but, profile picture, okay? Not just my face, but it's my actual avatar, but it's also on my own. There you go. Well, you, you won't. Wait, you actually have your face on yeah, your that's, arm? Yeah, that's actually my own, my own face. Yeah. What, wait, what's the very, inspiration for that? It's very bad. All right, so <laughs> how drunk were you? When I very when I was seventeen, <laughs> uh, I grew up in Indiana, and uh, I got my first tattoo. And so we used to do these things called tattoo parties, where you would find a tattoo artist and you would get them to come to your house and you would throw a party and everybody would come over. And because you or your friend with needles that says they can draw things, I'm still right, afraid so, to get my first one. This is fascinating. Go on. Yeah. So so basically, what happens is. They don't have to pay the shop fee, so they charge less, and everybody gets together and has a good time. But that basically means everybody's fucked up all night, and this guy's <laughs> fucked up on also tattooing. So I was 17. I got my first tattoo, which is the Dodge logo from 1973, which is my – I have a 73 Charger. So that's like – that's Mopar. That's me, you know. Then like four weeks later, we were having another tattoo party. And because I was hosting it, it was my house, the guy was like, hey, you get free work again. And I was like, I don't know what I want. Like, I just got like the best tattoo ever, (laughs) you know. Uh, And (laughs) my girlfriend at the time was wearing a shirt from this local band called Pennywise, not the punk band, some other local band with the same name. And And the shirt was a son that was like, had a face in it, it was like snarling. And this is like 5.30, 6.30 in the morning. We'd been partying since probably nine the night before. And uh, my buddy goes, that would be really cool, but if it was your face. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> so I just went for like an hour and this dude did a very bad, bad you, job of tattooing. So it was like life. He was like actually tattooing your face like off of your face, well, not yeah, just well, like, wait, wait, like wait, a so, picture. No. So is that basically truly art imitating life? <laughs> yeah. And then life imitating art again. <laughs> so it was really, really, really bad. Very bad tattoo. Uh, but I can't ever get rid of it because if you ever meet somebody and they go, oh, I don't know, Jason, like where you can be like, well, he has his own face tattoo on his arm. <laughs> and that just kind of like, that's enough. You got it. <laughs> so that's a great story. I, I believe in myself yeah. to a, to a, a frightening degree. Uh, but what I start off with by saying uh, I don't know that you should care about me because I don't know that you should. I'm going to give you reasons why I think that you should, but I don't know that you should. So I've been playing music for most of my life, and I was in a band that uh, put out three albums and did some decent touring and was on Sirius and got all the metal blog coverage, and the public basically decided that they didn't care. You know, there were definitely people who, who liked it, but they didn't really care. Uh, not enough to for us to to make it a career. And after the last formation of that band completely disintegrated because, you know, living on the road and making no money and busting your ass is tough. People just, you know, they wear out. Uh, I decided that it was time to completely start over. Instead of rebuilding the band, I just wanted to completely start over. And I had this idea to do something very melodically different, something that I didn't see happening in the uh, in the industry at that time, which is kind of, my idea was a cross between Typo and Gojira and Insomnium and Evergrey, finding a way to put those things together. Uh, and I didn't, I didn't hear that. There wasn't, <clears throat> a couple of years ago, there wasn't a lot of stuff that was really heavy, but still really melodic. 
like really had strong, strong melody lines in it uh, and, and big hooks and stuff. I mean, and they're, and, and I mean like really heavy, like, cause you know, there are bands that are like radio bands that are still heavy that have that stuff, but like a new young band that was doing something like that yeah. with also kind of like a gothy and a darker feel to it. Um, so that was the idea. And I just, uh, I started putting together the bass player from that last project came along with me uh, and we ended up getting the drummer who was the last drummer in that project. And then the bass players since moved on, but, uh, and then we just, we took a couple of years putting together the project and the, um, the piano player, we have a piano player, not a keyboard player. Like he straight up plays a piano. So like no synth sounds and all that stuff. He just plays piano. Do you still use um, MIDI to fix him? No, he's got to play that shit. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds um, tiresome. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it is, but He's got to play that shit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, so that made it a little different because he kind of sits in the place that a lead guitar would. But because he's got both of his hands, you know, he's walking all over the bass down here and he's walking all over uh -huh. the guitar up here and walking all over me everywhere. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it's, it's definitely been tough to fit those fit him in. But he was my intern back at Epic. 13 years ago or something. And then he wow. went on to have his own career. And so is he, just, he like Ray Manzarek and the doors or like, either like we have this nice tight song called light my fire. He's like, hold on, bro. I could play the bass part with my feet. And then I could do a seven minute solo <laughs> on the, on my Vox Supercontinental solo. And you can, and what you can do is you can walk around the stage. You can pass out, take some more acid. You can do whatever you want. And they're like, yes, let's empower our keyboardist. To not only replace the bass player, but also be like the lead guitarist because the guitarist in, in the doors had only been playing for three months. And well, it sounds like it. I didn't know that. That's fascinating. He had only been playing for three months. Yeah, actually, the only song that made me at first instilled value for me was was um, uh, uh, Spanish Caravan because it has that little flamenco thing. You know, Robbie Krieger did a good job considering the fact that he just got thrown into it. But yeah, he had basically been nothing, doing nothing, and he like hung out with Jim Morrison and Ray Manzarek and Oliver Stone at UCLA. He was at the right the right place at the right time, and his stupid hippie poem "Light My Fire" became one of the biggest songs ever. And now he's actually become a good guitar player to because if you hear him play, he plays the the, the uh, you know the keyboard parts and stuff on the guitar now because he's had fifty years to get better and he chose to. So I gave him that. But back in that day, it was lacking. Never been a Doors fan. That may that may explain it. <laughs> There's a lot of things like, that, like, it's one of those things that when I was a child, it was like, he was mystical. But then you go watch it now on Palladia, and you're like. Wait a minute. Was I fooled into thinking that this was a thing? Uh, we were all emotionally manipulated by the things that resonated with us when we first started. And that's, that's the beauty and the evil of music. Yes. I yeah. remember thinking Ozzy was a really good singer. Dude, me too. <laughs> and then you go great. back and find, well, when was the moment that you realized that Ozzy like is that Ozzy was actually never good and it's just different levels but, of bad. But here's the thing, what is good? Like yeah, I, is, is, it, is it because it was is it because on key in time like just start there but why why do those matter no <laughs> but more so more along the lines of like because i think we've had this conversation before on another episode but like you know when you first hear music and songs and you're listening as an outsider it's so weird going back to those things after you've been a musician and you've you've had to you know you're inside of music it's it's 
it blows my mind listening to the things I listened to when I like first like knew how to turn the radio on and what I thought of them. And I, I actually wish, I mean, I'm sure that like it could take acid, but like a, a way to get back to that mindset, <laughs> like without drugs to actually listen to music without all the analytical bullshit that courses through my brain would be oh, phenomenal. Yeah. You don't yeah. think that you shouldn't go to Shannon Larkin's lair. That's actually and take some, some, take some tea <laughs> and then listen on his, with, with, with the turtles and the koi fish and that you should maybe listen to some Franz list. Like I suggested <laughs> and that you can re relearn to be excited about things once again, because I, I think excited, I know what you're referring to. The, things the I disillusionment of learning that maybe those bands that you loved growing up, weren't actually as good as you thought they were because they made you feel better than now knowing as a musician than they actually are because now you're the guy going david copperfield does this you know like you, you're behind the curtain you're the wizard of oz and you're like you i could do this better but back then i remember listening to stone temple pilots back in the day and going how did he sing so many times at once he's <laughs> yeah. there's, how did they do this i didn't even know what an overdub yeah. was no i mean i remember i know i listened to music that was out of key and like out of time and it didn't bother me. It was like, I love this song. <laughs> well, for me, a lot of it now is like recording quality because my ear mm -hmm. was not as good to hearing good mixes, oh, good yeah. mixes, right? So I will go back now and listen. I'll be like, oh man, I can't wait to go back and listen to this recording I used to love. And then I listen, I'm like, yeah. damn. There's a lot of records what? I can't listen to anymore. Yeah, it's and it's so it's amazing. It's And that's why I'm stressed out all the time because like everything I listen to, everything I record, I'm just like, no, it's not good enough. I can't achieve the perfection that I hear in my ear. It's hard. Yeah, the more you train your ear. For sure. The funny, the funny one for me is, is that I use the example of the Misfits a lot because whenever I hear someone cover the Misfits, I'm like, what a great song. <laughs> but then if I listen to the Misfits version, yeah. I'm like, eh. You know, like Bob Dylan build an entire career off of that because you're like, ah, oh, all on the watchtower. What a good Jimi Hendrix song. You're like, no, that's Bob Dylan. And then you're like, oh, blowing in the wind. Bette Miller was the greatest. Like, no, that's Bob Dylan. You're like, oh, feel your love. That was Prince, Billy Joel, or Adele, depending on what decade you're in. Like, no, Bob Dylan. But then you go, and you're like, I'm blowing in the wind. And you're like, what the fuck? It's like <laughs> listening to Lou Reed, except if Lou Reed was worse. <laughs> and Leonard Cohen was like, I'm going to come it, and make it awesome just, music it again. Shows, horrible. It shows How's Hallelujah so good from Jeff Buckley? But then you hear Leonard Cohen, you're like, It can be I'm a like, good song what? with a bad performance what? or a, a different performance. But a good song yeah. is a good song. Yeah. Yeah. Like, awesome. If someone else takes it. Well, think about even now, they're performers and then they have songwriters. Some people that are the greatest performers of music aren't even necessarily writing those songs and mm -hmm. vice yeah. versa, you know? Yeah. So, I mean. Which is a fascinating thing for me. I mean, all all of us on this screen are performers. So I don't know that, I don't know how I could like really get into, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, sometimes I've worked with other people and they've brought in like other band members, like I got this line and, and I've worked to like make that part of my own. But like, if it just was walking in a room and like had no emotional connection to a song, I don't know if I could perform it. Could you? Welcome to my entire you're life. Me if you're, if you're <laughs> Steven Tyler and Joe Perry and you're like hanging out, and Desmond Child walks in the room and goes, guys, guys, I know you did draw the line, sweet emotion. I got our pivot. I got it. Dude looks like a lady. <laughs> How do you not sing that and own it? You know, it's, I think this is an eternal struggle for musicians because 
I've been on both sides of this and I, I haven't, obviously I haven't recorded other people's music, but you know, there's a band who I, I love a, a young rock band who I really, really love who are on their way up. And on their last album, their producer significant wrote the significant amount of a song that the label fell in love with and said, this is our single. And their manager's a good friend of mine as well. And they, the manager called me and was like, I need you to listen to this. The band hates it. I don't know where I sit on it. You know, and I listened to the song and I was like, guys, that's a fucking smash. I was like, it is, that is just a smash. There's nothing to say about it. And they didn't want to hear that. They were upset about it. They went through with it. They put the song out, probably the biggest song they've had in their career. Wait, but point. we know how this story ends. Sinead O'Connor walks in. She goes, I've written 12 songs for my record. And they're like, but we have a 13th song. Prince wrote it for you. It's called Nothing Compares to You. I don't want that as a single. I did not write that song. Yeah. They're like, but no, 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 no. Prince wrote it for you. And then they put her on camera, made her cry, made the dumbest B-roll of all time. And it's the only hit that she had. And she had to literally rip a Bible up live on Saturday Night Live, or a picture of the Pope, to let people know that she, she didn't like Prince representing the fact that she could actually write herself. I mean, you know, again. <laughs> She's a manic it's, Monday. It's the, it's the curse of being a, uh, an artist because you're going to do things that, that are as valuable to you or more valuable to you than anything else. And the public's not going to give a shit. And the thing that they may like is the thing that, that you like the least. And, and you got to make a choice. Like, well, what if okay? you're the Goo Goo Dolls and you think you're a punk punk band and then you come out with a song called name and then your label says, why don't you write a bunch more names? Do you pull a Goo Goo Dolls and then you become an acoustic band that writes like lame elevator music and make gajillions of dollars? <laughs> or do you still like, you know, uh, they're like Marcy's playground. Like, I don't want to write about sex or candy anymore and then have no career. I mean, look, I think, I think Johnny Resnick was always going that way. Like when you, when you read those, when you, you look, look at, at those chin, early, I agree. Like, you just look right into like the middle of his chin and you know exactly that he was like, I'm going to write weird tuning acoustic songs. How much smoke can you produce in one breath? <laughs> that was a lot. That was a lot. Uh, yeah, but I think Johnny was always going that way and I think that band was always, and, and frankly, I'm actually, this is, here's a, a, a shocker for you. I am a big fan of those Goo Goo Dolls songs. All the acoustic, Black yep. Balloon, uh, all that stuff. I mean, those songs are, are just fantastic. What if I said that they were going on tour with Collective Soul? How much happier would you be? Collective Soul was all right. Dude, that, were, that's a band. Collective Soul's like, funny to me because they were like they wanted to be heavy almost. <laughs> like they have like heavy riffs, but like yeah. the most like no gain, no yeah. It's just yeah, it's but super the, the heavy. If they, is, if they just like punched it up and the, the singing was a little. Do soft you know how many records there. Collective Soul has actually sold? That's the thing that yeah, they're one of those ridiculous. bands that like are deceptively humongous. Where they've sold, they yeah. have like probably twenty like Billboard charting top twenty five hits, like no doubt including probably, I don't know, at least 10 top 10 hits. Like, it's insane. You're like, how? Yeah. It's called Adult Top 40 Radio, or AAA, depending on what market you're in. And it's not stuff that we listen to, but there are a whole lot of people with little fish stickers and, like, the five <laughs> little stencil people on the back of their window that listen to it all day long. Like I feel very disconnected from this demographic. Life, man. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm playing music by dead people and wondering why I'm still poor. So, yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, listen, it, did you not know that like Schubert died like sick of syphilis with 
papers all over his apartment, like destitute. I mean, a lot of the composers would it, would it make died. You, would it make you happy to know that, like, by the time you were seven years old, True. you'd written fantasy for four hands, but then you still die of a venereal disease by yourself with a bunch of unpublished genius that nobody even cared about? But I think that's art. I think that's exactly what art is. I, you know, venereal diseases. Guy, no, no, the the uh, inequity. Of, of, the, of what happens. I mean, you know, the, one of the guys who runs Metal Sucks says this all the time. He says that, you know, the phenomenon of making a living from music has only really been around for like the last 70 years at this point, right? Mm-hmm. Prior to that, like nobody made a living making music unless you were somebody's, you know, uh, like, yeah, like a commission yeah. gig. Commission, or something. Yeah, yeah, something like yeah, that. Yeah, basically you know, right? that's so, how the composers live too. Yeah. They had yeah. some rich people sponsoring them to write stuff, and they were like, "All right," and that's how a lot of that stuff. Have got you produced. guys ever seen the movie Amadeus? They used to have like yes. battle offs where they'd get like Mozart in a room with like Beethoven and be like, "Here's your harpsichord versus the pianoforte, go!" And Gilbert <laughs> Godfrey would like read all the stuff in between. And now, is that- for variation on Salieri. I just lost it, a frequency in my ear. Yeah. Sorry. Did that did that happen? Did that really happen? Or was that just for that movie? Was that like when I think they actually did stuff like that, but like they they dramatized it more they of like dramatized a UFC it, place I'm sure. That, but yeah, no, they had rich elitist motherfuckers that would absolutely get Siobhan and, and people like her and be like, dance bitch, you're gonna represent Germany and you're gonna represent Meyer Court fucking France go and then they'd go and she'd play her Stradivarius and they'd play their Armadi and we'd see who'd win. And then whoever won, it would be like, ah, here's a bunch of gold and whores and good food. <laughs> and they would send them back. Not much has changed. They just pay actual cash money now instead. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, have you guys seen Eurovision? <laughs> Is it, I've it, seen Eurotrip. I know that Scotty doesn't know. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> no, but what's the name? What, I'm sorry, Eurovision. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it's the Eurovision Song Contest. That's what it's called. Every country submits an, a band or a singer or an artist in Europe, and they have like an American Idol style thing where they yeah. all perform mm-hmm. and they get voted and they like battle it out. And <laughs> oh, so they're man. still doing it. Yeah, yeah. Kind of in that vein, I feel like it's very, very difficult to be like a true, true artist and be successful. Like, especially now, like to, to, to come up in the industry in your experience with bands, not only that you've worked with, but you've been around, like how do people generally lean? Like when they get that call from the label or the producer, that's like, yeah, we're going to run this song because it's, even though you don't like it, this is the one that's going to go. Are most bands that are actually making a living, uh, just like, okay, well we can keep doing this if we do this versus we're going to lose money or is there a lot of pushback nowadays where making money is so difficult in music? I mean, I think one of the things that I learned, I don't know, it's been, it's been quite a few years now, but one of the things that really changed the way that I approach almost everybody I deal with in the music industry is that when I truly understood that every artist in the music industry has worked as hard as I have and as every artist you've ever met has, and every one of them believes as much in their art as we do. And, and that includes the people who make music that we go, oh yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like a perfect example, I watched um, 
I think Vice is doing this series. It's like the story of. I'm going to tell you, Hardwell did not work hard or well, and he's very far. He's been called the best DJ in the world, and I watched that whole documentary where he spoke about himself in third person, and all it did is make me fucking hate my life and want and want to and want to pull an Avicii on myself. Yeah, dude, that's. That's a a little bit of a different thing. I would say like, you know, playing an instrument, learning an instrument, and then like going out and doing shows and building that. No, but he spoke about himself in third person as he was doing B-roll of himself playing piano. I actually play piano. And it was horrible. It literally was like unlistenable. At least Dead Mouse has the fucking courtesy to say that I don't even play instruments. I just have thousands of millions of dollars worth of keyboards I just look at. I I will never watch that documentary, I promise you. (laughs) Don't. <laughs> All right, but go on, Jason. So you were talking about something that you were watching? Yeah, so the Vice does this thing called The Story Of, and they did like Cisco's The Thong Song. And I thought, you know, it's, it's like a seven or eight minute thing on YouTube. That's a and great I was, idea. Yeah, and I was like, oh man, this is going to be horrible. Man, those dudes sat there and talked about it. Like, this is how we built the hook, and this is where this part came in, and we took it from this. That song's and genius, then, dude. Yeah, it's it was a very well-written pop song, but yeah. they took it as seriously as I took any song I've ever written in my life. And so I, I have yet to meet an actual artist, a signed artist that's actually out there working. That's not a hired gun, because I'll say that I've definitely met some hired guns who are like, what do you want me to look like? I'm yeah. doing that. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? But sure. like the actual artists that are writing music and, and mm-hmm. you know, steering the ship on their own career, I have never met one that didn't believe full wholeheartedly in their music as much as every one of us does yeah well i think especially with pop like it it, there's no question about it writing a hit song's hard like otherwise everyone would do it so it's it's complete bullshit to be like oh they're pop art like pop writer i should say artists who knows whether or not they even have met the writer but like uh it's really hard and, and you have people, you know, obviously like, like Max Martin, that's one of the most prolific songwriters of like <laughs> the century. Uh, and no, you know, people know who he is, but most people don't, but no. he's talented as fuck. And so who's, who's the new guy that's got all the hits now? Is it Lewis Bell does all the post Malone and Bieber stuff? Like it's incredible. Like and more- Ozzy Osbourne. What? The guy who does Post Malone also does all the Ozzy stuff. In fact, Post Malone and Ozzy have a bunch of songs together, and it even makes sense. Hmm. The like, last, that guy is a genius. The last record, yeah. The, the guy who was producing the Post Malone record produced the, the last Ozzy record, yeah. And the current Ozzy record that has 15 songs, which I who knows what that sounds like. Yeah, no, but I encounter this a lot in the classical world, where especially like me as a crossover musician, it's like there is a lot of talk amongst classical people it's like oh yeah pop music is a sellout and this is easy and it's like I've I've come to respect it so much more even than I did because I was stuck in that world of like the trained musician and people that were like oh the only real music was written by dead guys from 300 years ago <laughs> and it's like it is so hard and and you really do have to have so much dedication and commitment to like what you believe in in your style of music you're so right about well, that. well let me say something as someone who's DJed hundreds of weddings when you see people from every walk of life throw their purses down and then go, ooh, that dress so scandalous, and you know another blank couldn't handle it, see you shaking that thing like, who's that ish? With the look in your eyes so devilish, uh, you like to dance at this hip-hop spots and you cruise the cruise like connect the dots, not just some urban, she likes to pop, because she was living La Vida Loca, which was a huge song at the time. That's genius. But you listen to the pre-chorus. This isn't even the chorus. Listen to the hook in this. She had dumps like a truck, 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 
thighs like what 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 baby move your butt 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 uh i'll sing it again and then he says the same thing again if that's not operant conditioning and going hey man we're gonna hammer this home literally like a dump truck that's that's poetry and i'm telling you that it takes a lot to know as a producer how much it takes to do that because i see a bunch of people out of nowhere they'll sing that word for word that I says something I didn't even know what song you were singing until you got to the pre-chorus. That is the <laughs> song. Song. I have heard it so many times. It's 100, 109 BPM, and it's perfect. It's perfect. Perfect transition if you want to go up to 128 from like 100. Perfect. DJ one, skills. 110-ish. There you go. <laughs> I don't know. But anyways, how's, uh, how's Nefariant right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, we're still discovering that, yeah. you know? Honestly, uh, we're, we write a lot. Um, I would say the first couple of songs, it was either, you know, guitar based where we started or it was piano and we were trying to fit the two things together. Uh, but we've started, I think we've gotten to a place now the last couple of songs where I'm very happy that we, that we're writing things that are like, we're together now, you know, we understand yeah. how these instruments fit. And so we're writing things that are not a piano riff mm -hmm. writing to a guitar riff or not a guitar riff writing to a piano riff, but rather here's a melodic thought. Let's put these things together. So I'm, I'm excited about that. It's very, very collaborative. Uh, I can't play anything. Uh, <laughs> I write stuff and try not to fall off stage. That's what I do. So, um, you know, they, when they, when we get in a room together, it's, it's usually like we're in a room. Here's some ideas. We have a, I covered one whole door with just like white vinyl and we have this crazy calligraphy that we write or like how we map out the songs and just go back and forth and work on them until we don't hate them, I guess. It's a good strategy. You yeah. guys have a, you have a song out now and a video, it's uh, Life on Fire. Yeah. And uh, it's killer. I, I mean, if, if anyone hasn't Thank checked you. it out yet, look it up. Uh, it's super cool video, uh, great song. And, and What it's, a lovely uh, voice you have. Thank you. Like seriously, like I, I feel like my mom when I say this, like because like it, it, you you have like this anger that like would scare off like you know any evil demon that like when you put two mirrors and create a por portal and things start moving around your house, like they'd go back with the way that you scream. But then all of a sudden it's like, ah, uh, and it's not like quite ghost. It's not there. It makes sense. It's like definitely not like disconcerting. It's but it's beautiful, and it is very Thank melodic. You. But it's it's disconcerting for someone who's used to like, I guess the abrasiveness and then all of a sudden it's like, wow, this, this almost feels good. Is that what we're supposed to feel? Is, am I supposed to feel good after listening to that music? Is, is that the objective? I'm good with that. I'm all right. I'll take that. Thank you. Yes. I felt good, but I was like, I don't feel like metal's meant to make me feel good because like maiden always makes me feel like I'm, I'm about to go to the gallows pole. Yeah. <laughs> I would say maybe, you know, which this is, I'm going to say something that no one ever does. But if you listened a little more to the lyrics, you probably would not feel as good. I don't then, listen to lyrics at all. I was going to say, get... I'm the same. Like, I, I remember melody and lyrics. I, my brain does not compute the That's first where you're a times. man. John Garabedian called it out. Women listen to lyrics. Men listen to... But that's also because that's the musician inside of you. Whereas yeah, women are more sensual yeah. thinking about, yeah, the inferred feeling where men are like, but the solo goes... Yeah. My, the, the piano player in my band is a real estate agent and uh, a bunch of people in his office, obviously, have, they came to see us last February. They've seen the video. And apparently now they started 
every time they close a sale, they just yell out in the office, my life's on fire. <laughs> and they started saying that. And I was like, they have not listened to these lyrics. <laughs> they have no idea what this song's about. You mean like when they played Sweet Home Alabama for like politics in Alabama? And it's like, guys. Yeah. Not the right song. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I appreciate the compliment. Thank you very much. Uh, it definitely is meant to be a little bit dark. So probably not the the best feeling, but that's all right. Well, you have the you kind of juxtaposition between the melodic aspect and the darker lyrics. I think it, you know, that adds depth, right? That's what I'm going for, hopefully. <laughs> no, it, it's very cool. And, and you mentioned before with the piano, it's definitely a unique sound. Uh, and you had Ulrich Wilde, who's been on the show, mix it, correct? Yes. And, yeah. uh, you know, it, it, you've, there's a trap with metal bands to sound exactly like every other metal band because you want to be aggressive and have that like in your face. You want to compete with every other metal band out there. And I think you guys found a really good balance of, of having this, like it is, it's like a softness over the super brutal um, metal sound, which gives it something that uh, like, I don't think I've, I've heard recently. I can tell you what it reminds me of. It's I forget what they call the effect, but like when they're in the movie Reservoir Dogs and they're playing the song stuck in the middle with you, but then they cut (laughs) off the guy's ear. It gives you two cross emotions because it's like stuck in the middle and he's walking around Mm -hmm. like with the the razor, like having a blast. And the guy's and they cut off his ear. But like you're if you didn't know, he's just having a good time. He's having a great time, but he's cutting off the fucker's ear. That's how I feel with your music. I feel like, <laughs> am I supposed to feel bad that the guy's getting his ear cut off, or should I be stuck in the middle with you? Like, and, uh, you know, like, I, I don't know. I don't know how that's supposed to make me ambivalent. feel. It's a very strange Venn diagram of emotions that I don't know which polar side I'm supposed to end at. I I absolutely love that. That that is amazing. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, that is that's fantastic. I mean, and and to your point, Corey, uh, our internal branding messaging is actually elegant and brutal. That's exactly <laughs> well, what we're trying wow. to do. Nailed don't, it. Don't figure that the and, uh, you of all people would nail that. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that. That's uh, I would and, I would do that. Benny, it's funny that you bring up that scene because I actually wrote a treatment for one of the other songs that is a takeoff of that scene <laughs> specifically. Uh, so very, <laughs> yeah, you got as it. always that's, very on brand. Yeah. No, that's, that's amazing. Yeah. So that's, that's the idea. Exactly. We want to do two different things. And uh, I think we had an idea. I had an idea in my head initially of what I wanted it to sound like in the lane that I felt like it, it fit in. Uh, and we had, uh, we had it mixed once with a guy who I love and who we track with and he's amazing. And he listened to everything that I said. And because as we'll find out at the end of this story, we didn't give him what he needed. What came out, the mix that came out was not right. And we knew it wasn't Wait, right. He listened to everything. Out. The singer that doesn't play music <laughs> said, yes. I already know what the problem is. Yeah. You know what Ulrich Wilde said to us? He goes, I don't listen to what anyone says about anything. I just get the tracks and start. So, see, that's what I was about to say, because I sent Ulrich exactly the same instructions and exactly the same references. And he wrote me back three days later and just said, I didn't listen to any of those things. I just mixed it the way that it needed to be mixed. And the first pass, I was like, oh, yeah, this is this is what this band is. And he actually helped us kind of like find ourselves because, you know, there's two guys in this band who are from the Midwest. 
and we grew up playing in the Midwest. And and when you know that and you hear nefarious, you're like, oh yeah, I get that's Midwest. Like there are some like Chicago things happening in. But this you you bring up a really good point that a lot of people don't acknowledge. It's one thing to play in a band room, in a basement, whatever, and hear your band. And it's another thing to, like, to put your band on in a car or at someone's house and for it to sound good or how you think it sounds. Because it's a totally different experience. And sometimes you have to go into a studio and get a guy like Ulrich Wilde to be like, no, 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 dude. This is what it is. And then you recreate the sound that you've heard your band sounds like when it's like the final report card. You're like, this oh, is, like, this is my, uh, this is my, my, my report. And they turn it in. And it's already been edited by the teacher with all the lines. You're like, wait a minute. That's not what I wrote. And then you listen to it. And you're like, I have to play that. I have to play that. And you go back and you actually figure out how to make yourself sound like that. And then that's when at practice you start sounding like the band that you actually were meant to be versus just a band in a room like every other fucking band. 100%. 100%. And that's exactly what he did. We, we didn't want to be as Midwest as we are, <laughs> but we couldn't deny it because it's who we are. And, and we, what makes we just, you Midwest? I'm, I'm curious because I've, you know, growing up, I didn't really go to band concerts. I grew up in the Midwest. So like, okay. <laughs> we do, no, I'm we, just do curious. Call, we do call soda pop. Uh, but um, so, you know, specifically the drummers from Chicago and I'm from Indiana. And there's a very specific, when you think about the bands that are from Chicago, you think about Nonpoint, Disturbed. I think about uh, Chicago. You're my inspiration, Jason. Yeah, it's a great band. Great band. Don't uh, blow your head off. I will try not to. Russian roulette uh, never ends in a good, in a good way. No. <laughs> uh, but, you know, when you think about the approach of those bands and how they approach drumming, if you know, if you hear those bands, you listen to what they're doing. It's like you just hear it. It's right there. Like big fans of Soulfly and like a very tribal rhythmic kind of like a, a lot of Pantera in there as well, even though they're obviously Texas. But like there's that influence hit the Midwest really hard in the 90s. And so when you heard you came up in that area, hearing all those metal bands that we came up in and came up playing around, there's kind wait, of a very specific wait, approach. Wait, wait, wait. <clears throat> Let's slow that down. You said Pantera influenced the Midwest and then they influenced Massively. the fucking world. In yeah, the 90s. but, but, but there's like, like, like I mean, a, America in particular, but like I was in Boston and Pantera was my fucking religion. Oh, yeah. And I remember when they came around, like when everyone talks about being in the 80s and like they had nothing else. And when they saw bands, it was like, oh, my God, that's my hit parader come alive. That was the first band that I saw that I was like literally. I had butterflies more than anything in my in my world. So I'm not saying they didn't influence the Midwest, but I want to make it clear that when they used to come to Boston, they sold out every single time and that like that influenced yeah, an Pantera entire was pretty scene. Big. Yeah, they were a yeah, huge period. Yeah. Period. <laughs> period. I'm I'm aware. They were big. What were you gonna say, Siobhan? No, no, no. I was just gonna tell Ben you know? to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyways, there's a very specific like approach that you hear. And, and my vocal is, especially my heavy vocal uh, and the cadence of what I do and, and about half of what I do is also very Midwest. There are a lot of bands, I think, that I've even tried to get away from it a little bit, but I, it's just who I am. There's nothing I can do about it. So, are you able to go from that angry growl to the sing for, the vo- in, for real in the studio? Or do you have to like have like the compression change to a different thing? And you're like Wayne Stack who's like, ah, you push it. Because ah! that's what he, he told me. He told me it's all compression for him. And I, I thought it sounded great. But like, do you, can you actually do it at that volume? Or are you like one of those guys that manipulates your, your, head to make it sound like what we're hearing. 
No, I mean, I, all of my screams are subglottal, which is the same. Uh, you know, you know what that is. Yeah. So uh, everything is coming from as they would they would say it in in like singer speak. Everything is coming out of false chord as opposed to fry. I don't do hardly any fry at all. Uh, so even my high notes are affected false chord, and my low notes are affected false chord. So I'm full volume. I am a very very loud singer. Like <laughs> like sometimes like not good loud. How loud I am. <laughs> so it's it's very um my my clean voice is actually still louder than my screams, but not significantly louder. So I, I don't think I don't people do... realize that that for singers, and I, I got to say this as someone who attempts to sing, I'm not saying I'm a singer. I have I've attempted, but like volume, especially if you notice, I can't control the volume of my voice even when I speak. Nevertheless, when I sing, I can't even sing. And like it's like it goes from like ah! to like, ah! <laughs> and I have so much respect from like you know when you go listen to like Mariah Carey and like you're listening to like early Carey, like I'm talking like. Tommy Mottola was totally nailing her and she was like trying to be a good girl like way before she got thugged out. Like you listen to her go from her like falsetto to her head voice to her chest voice. Like literally it's like she's dancing around like Nancy Kerrigan before someone found a bat. Like it's fucking insane. And I I have so much respect for that now as a vocalist because I can't do that. Mike Patton, he, that guy is like literally a magician with his vocal cords. Unreal. That guy's unreal. Yeah, some people are yeah. just built different. It's it's insane. Yeah, yeah. Devin he's, Townsend, he's amazing. Jesse, uh, Jesse, Jesse Killswitch. Yeah, Jesse well, Leach. listen, Jesse and Howard, because there's the argument yeah. all day, the Venn diagram, and I'm so glad they did that. Uh, the song together that they did to finally shut the fuck up. Everybody was like, "Oh well, I like Jesse. I like Howard." And they're like, "We can like each other, man." <laughs> Yeah. And they made a brutal song where they basically took the best of Howard and the best of Jesse. And it's not like Jesse being the current singer had to push down Howard. He empowered Howard. Yeah, it was beautiful. He empowered Howard. Yeah. Anyway, a lot of this is to get back to the original point, which is that in, in a lot of ways, the mix or who you choose to mix your song has a huge impact on your aesthetic and your brand. And this is something that Brock and I talk about a lot. He, you know, one of his stories is one of his very first bands. They actually would have been like probably really big. But they just they rushed the record. They rushed the mix. They wanted to save money, all this stuff. And he and the other guitar player were trying to talk them out of doing this. Like, let's pay the extra few thousand dollars, like get a really good mix done. Don't push this, you know, debut of the album. And yeah, I think it changed the course of that band for a really long time. And it's it's got a huge impact that a lot of people might not realize. Also, Jason, did you guys self-produce or did you work with a producer? So the the guy who engineered the record kind of produced it with us. Um, you know, we do so much writing in the studio and, mm -hmm. and we have the ability to at least like do pre-pro a little bit that yeah. we get pretty far. But then when we get in to actually do the tracking, you know, he helps us put the that last 10% on it, yeah. you know, iron out the like, hey, I don't think those two notes are exactly right and you right. Know, little stuff. Oh, that's Corey. <laughs> no, but but I, I think that that producers can have that 10%, they can have 2%, they can have 90%. But I think that it, it depends on what the artist needs. And and also, you know, it depends on probably how much, I'm sure further into an artist's career as well, once you develop a sound and, and, and you know, artists that have been doing it forever are basically walking into a studio like it's just another Saturday and they know what, they know what's going on. But um, it can really make a big difference. And, and to your point Siobhan like what Brock was saying sometimes cheaping out if you're a new artist and you're going to record for the first time or or record like your real first record that you're going to try to promote 
I think a lot of new artists think they know more than they do about how to make their music translate. And so a producer can act as that little filter that says like, all right, like you guys have some great songs, but well, you're, here's the they're going to, people are going to turn it off at before the first verse comes in. Cause you guys are doing this here. Like, no, so, you're, um, you're 100% technolo- right. Technology yeah. has enabled people to think that they know more about things than they do because now People have always thought they knew more. No, but that's right. But but you don't have to go and spend a thousand dollars to be in a studio anymore to have good quality stuff. But that doesn't make you a good songwriter or have good songs. You're just capable of recording yourself well. And like that's the thing is like I've met so many bands that are like they know how to do things, but they're lacking the thing that makes a band a band, like the music or this or that. And people are so concerned with you know. Oh man, I got these pre's, or I got this mic, or I got this room, and they don't remember that the song has to matter. (laughs) No, dude, my fucking studio is treated like bullshit. This room sounds like crap. The standing ways, Siobhan, what were you you going to say? No, I was just going to say, but you're totally right, and that's what changed with Brock and his second band, Live My Last, is that they decided to work with the producer, and that's exactly what it was. They had like what they thought were some great songs, and went in, and the producer was like all right, this is like pretty good, but we're basically going to start over. (laughs) And he took like the bare bones of what he saw was the best stuff and helped them really write a song that, that made them like, you know, get pretty big pretty quickly. So it's, well, Corey does it better than that though. You know, I know he does. He, he, he makes you do it by yourself and then goes, is that really what you want to do? I don't make you do it. I could fix, I could fix it. I mean, I could fix it. I mean, if, I mean, I got a lot, I could fix it. And then it's just like, okay, and I'll send it again. And then he'll be like, well, I auto-tune one part and I ducked this other part. Wait, what are you saying? Oh, it's just not, I thought it was good. And then I'll do it again. And he'll just be like, it's in there. <laughs> I mean, I, I think, you know, Siobhan, to your, your point, which I think is so, so important. Young artists have to understand how little amount of time they actually have with the public. You know, me as somebody who's a grown man who has friends in the music industry who are grown men and who I believe legitimately respect me. Uh, One of my my closest friends, huge manager in the scene, hires me to, to do stuff to help him out all the time, talks about how much he respects me. He's had recordings, the recordings of this EP for a year and a half. And when I put out the video, he was like, well, this this really sounds good. Why didn't you send me the stuff? And I'm like, you've had it for a year and a half, bro. And he's like, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. And I've talked to him. I talk to him every day almost. He still has not listened to the rest of it. Right? Like, and this is a person who, like, you're one of my best friends, Jason. And I'm like, thanks, man. (laughs) Poopsenders.com. Listen to my record. But that's the reality. And it's not because he doesn't respect me. It's because he's busy and -hmm. he doesn't have necessarily time to do that. I mean, other people that I know who I really respect, I sent them the first mix. Is he on Cameo? Because we can hire him as a marketing expense <laughs> to listen to, to, listen yeah. to your song. And he's then not we'll on Cameo. A, oh, we'll tell him you're on Cameo. We'll throw him a few bucks. I'm pretty sure he still has a flip phone. He's, he's, <laughs> he's a little up there. Uh, right. but, so that means PayPal's out. Yeah. But, uh, you know, then I send him the new mixes and I get responses like, oh, man, these new songs are great, man. I really like this stuff better than the old stuff. And I'm like... <laughs> It's the same song. It's the same song. Right? Yeah. Like, and it, even people that you respect and that you know, if they hear something that they don't like that doesn't resonate with them, it's gone. It's out. The, and, and I believe that the people I sent it to listened to it. Mm. This guy specifically, I know he listened to it, but it didn't resonate because it, it wasn't good. It wasn't where it needed to be yet. And you just have to realize that you, you're making a record. This may be that song that you're working on right at that moment, maybe the only thing 
that multiple people in the world ever hear you do. To make it worse, people have the ability now to quickly toggle through everything. You know, it's like two seconds of something. And if you don't like the sound of it or whatever, even if you, you're you not compute, you know, even if you're not a musician and you're not, you don't know why you don't like it, you know, you're just like, all right, on to the next. Yeah. It's, and that's uh, the yeah, other problem. Totally right. I, I say that all the time. I think the average person doesn't know the difference between a bad mix and a bad band. They have no mm -hmm. clue. The whole point of a producer is to get what's in the artist's head Absolutely. to actually come out <laughs> instead of them yeah. trying to do it because then it'll just be a mess. And that's why it's also <laughs> important to make sure you pick the right producer. Oh, yeah. Yep. Meet with the producer beforehand. Have a conversation. Make sure you guys are on the same page because you also have the problem sometimes of a person getting in the studio and having their own opinion about, about mm -hmm. something and about what your music is. I've, I mean... I'm also not probably the best person for this, but I have never made a record where I haven't gotten in at least one argument with the person who's making the record with me because I'm like, no, this is the vision. I'm just, yeah. If I ever produce you, I would just use Jason Leckberg uh, uh, tactics. I'd just be like, listen, you hired me, but you do whatever you want. Like I've told you that it's wrong, <laughs> but that's fine. Like I've literally expressed it in every way, politely. In that is, that's a valid not. tactic, though. I, no, 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 or, he's right. no. Like, but listen, but I, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm only a classical pianist that worked with Marty Friedman, and you're only a singer that knows nothing. But listen, <laughs> stick to the marketing thing. And but you're right. Or we can yeah. talk about Ben's way of producing, which is like, oh, here, Siobhan, why don't you just do whatever you want with this? Just just decide, orchestrate it. <laughs> I'm out. And, and then you, after 40 hours of work, like, oh, no, that's not it has to be. You have to do it this way. I'm like, why couldn't you tell me this from the beginning? Do you not so, understand? Is Rick Rubin? <laughs> <laughs> don't don't even put that idea no, in his Rick head. Rick Rubin never even he's comes like, yeah. back. He never comes back. He just gets pizza and he's gone. <laughs> and then he yells at someone on the phone. Is there someone still yelling at someone? He's like, yeah, cool. But you gotta Metallica. If, if you watch Shangri La, that that docu series he put out, he, he has spent years cultivating when the right time to be in the room is, and now he knows when the right. Listen, time to my be in buddy the room Dave, is. who produced my first record, was his engineer at Sound City Studios. Okay, and I know all about it. He's like, dude, I worked on the Sabbath record, the Lady Gaga record, and like Gaga called him Squirrel. He was known as Cooter because he was from South of the Mesa Dixon line. And he would also have gotten a Dodge probably tattooed on him, <laughs> except he was too covered in oil to even waste his time in a tattoo parlor. But now he was working for fucking Rick Rubin. You know what he said? I did everything in that studio. He wasn't there for fucking shit. And I, my name's barely in the liner notes of things. And I'm not saying that Rick Rubin is not a good producer, but I don't think his tactic of not being there is good production. That's just smart well, economics. Well, there's different kinds of, of Some life. producers find the right people to make shit happen. And some producers are more hands on, hands on. It's just, there's different styles. You know, producer <laughs> is such a meaningless term. The Dow of right? Rubin. Producers some pro make some shit producers happen. go That's smoke it. a dab while someone else is left to her own devices <laughs> using Pro Tools. But, you know, whatever. I don't mean to be the sauerkraut in the Rubin. I hate sauerkraut. <laughs> <laughs> don't order the Rubin. The Rick I, Rubin. I don't, I don't order the Rubins. I don't, like, I don't like sauerkraut or rye bread. I just remember a certain Corey Taylor telling me, like, dude, that guy, nah. And I was like, really? But then again, I feel like when I met Corey, he's nice, though. He's nice. What? No, I'm just saying Rick Rubin. I just feel like okay. he was one of those guys. Like He made Slayer and run DMC, and he did so much cool stuff. And then he was just like, I could just order a pizza on Maui and do my own thing, and then I'll walk into the room. <laughs> You know, it's really, time for me to flex my muscle. 
I really appreciate the uh, the spiritual. I don't. I don't even like the word spiritual, but I appreciate the the mental way that he approaches music. I, I appreciate the way he thinks about art, and I appreciate the way he talks about art, and that he encourages other artists to think about themselves and about art. And I think that's valuable. What he does in the studio, I don't know. I probably will never know. I I don't think he and I would get along in the studio. <laughs> Just operate on different wavelengths. Yeah. Wow. Well, I, I think that the beginning of this conversation was, you know, that uh, you've put a lot into these recordings, <laughs> regardless, and uh, everyone should definitely check out Nefarian and and Life Thank on you. Fire. And well, the whole EP is out now. Okay. So we dropped the whole EP at the same time. Wait, so has it been out for a year, and we just didn't pay attention? Did you already send uh, this no. to me? This is yes. Yeah. No, I'm just we kidding. Had, I listened it, to everything. It's actually awesome. First, we had it after our first uh, no, it, recording, I, but in fact, for the people listening, it, I, I thought it was awesome. I, I guys, I gotta say, hats off because I <laughs> first off, I've I've heard your old band, and your old band was good, and I was like, all right, uh, but like again, it kind of like the elitist, like it didn't move me. But then I listened to this new stuff, and I and, and I'm I'm with Corey. Like this, it sound first off different. So like, that's good. Just especially as a producer, like, you know, where a lot of people are like, I don't like it because it's different. Like that's first off the reason why I immediately like something is because it's different. But secondly, the dichotomy of your vocals is really fucking intense. And again, like, you know, the really the layers of intense melodicism, but then again, intense aggressivity is a, a new approach to it. And, and I, I really liked it. And, and, Ulrich, and knowing that Ulrich Wilde did what he did and then having spoken to him it makes so much sense that your band has got that sound and that you and you you guys were so smart to have him involved because he really nailed it because listening to it with headphones on was really wonderful because i mean you know as a as a guy that has to listen to mixes all the time when a mix sounds good it's always like oh i don't have to lie (laughs) What, yeah. I was, what I was getting at, uh, you, you mentioned a treatment for another video. Are you guys yeah. doing more like single pushes like that or? I mean, we'd love to, you know, there's, we're, our plan is three EPs over mm-hmm. the next couple of years and then a physical product that wraps all of them up at the end. So three digital EPs. Uh, and, and look, we love the songs on this EP. We're already almost done writing the second EP. Nice. Um, it really comes down to money. You know, we're self-funding this, you know, it's just us. And, and I'm very fortunate to have four other dudes in the band who all work very hard and are as dedicated as I am, but Ulrich's not cheap. Uh, you know, Paul Logos who mastered it is not cheap. Uh, licensing the art from Eric Lacombe, who's a, Dude, you can send artist. your songs for $20 and they'll master it for you right on the internet with a program live. Like you just put it up and it's like in the time it takes to say calculating, you get it back and your songs mastered. Why would you even waste your money? You know, sometimes I do stupid things like get my own face tattooed on my arm. You know what I mean? Like, sometimes I just do dumb shit. So, uh, as we've <laughs> established, you should pay episode? the experts. And actually, Jason, I was waiting for you to like to take the layup, like Lost Symphony Chapter Three should probably be dropping very close yes. to when this is going to be here. And 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 actually, how well our marketing campaign goes will determine how much we, you know, obsess and also bother Jason's life. So if you guys would like to help Jason have a better quality of life, as well as contribute to the patronage of what we really are doing here on the show, which is pretending that we aren't really a band putting out like a tip jar on the internet, um, go to lostsymphony.com, buy chapter three, 
It's for our fallen friend and brother that really brought Siobhan, uh, me and Corey, and my brother, um, who's a big part of this together. We got Marty Friedman to come out to the dance. We got David Ellison to come out to the dance. We got Alex Skolnick come out to the dance. Jimmy Bell, the, the best lefty, I argue, on the fucking planet. You got Matt LaPierre, who's a beast. Kelly, who literally is burning up Jackson because this guy wasn't even endorsed uh, before. And now, like, just people watching him against Jeff Loomis, who's also on the album. It, you can't ignore the fact that he's a freaking psychopath as far as guitar is concerned. <laughs> and add to it the fact that you, you, sir, know one Mr. Alex Skolnick, who, by the way, at some point, like... If people haven't seen the episode, like the fact that you got him at your wedding is just fucking phenomenal. <laughs> um, but I, because of that camaraderie that you had with him, we also got Skolnick and we got Nuno Betancourt on the same song. So if you guys don't even care about this episode, but you guys like guitar or you or you loved All That Remains, Ollie Herbert, or you, you just like metal or classical music, but you want something different. LostSymphony.com. That was a great introduction. Great I couldn't summer. say it better. Except the show's like over, so it's like bye. <laughs> that's that's this the is, time this you is your epic thrive. summary. Yeah. <laughs> As we wrap up the show is when you usually take off. Here's here's the good news. The magic of editing. Yeah. <laughs> Don't you know that haven't you watched this show at all, Jason? See, you just got annoyed. Corey doesn't like editing things, and he's certainly not going to edit it Quentin Tarantino style, where he's like, oh, well, maybe it would have been better if Benny only interjected 20 minutes in at this time. He doesn't have fucking time for that shit. The amount of time it takes to edit me to, like, to look even remotely affable is just, there is, it's not quantifiable. Yeah, I just use a machete. It's just kind of, <laughs> that section's, all right, get it out of there. No, machete. You, 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 you use Danny Trejo? Yes. That's fucking yes, awesome. Absolutely. You like, you show them, oh, it's, Benny it's what's Good required. Man. Yeah. <laughs> so anyways, yes. Lost Symphony Chapter 3 is incredible and added to Chapter 1 and Chapter 2. It is a, a very impressive body of work. Uh, and I, you know, I've said it before, but uh, I'm happy to say it again. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm excited to work with all of you uh, because of the, the quality of the music. I mean, the stuff you guys are putting out is... Certainly is not our personalities. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note... Jason, thank you for coming back <laughs> thank for another you, Jason. couple hours Yeah, of this, this was bullshit. amazing. All, uh, all the stuff we covered. It's, yeah, it was nice to veer off in a bunch of different directions on these episodes. Like, I, I'm only here some. for the mortgage payment, man. <laughs> Fair enough. Check out Nefarian. We'll have links below this episode. Uh, wherever you're watching or listening, there'll be a link there. Check out Leckbert Enterprises. And Jason, what else? Uh, you know, anything else you want to tell our our where your live shows again listeners uh june 12th and august uh 21st arrogant swine is the name of the location in brooklyn but your listeners should absolutely check out lost symphony We've got a lot more coming for them more 2020 episodes more neurotic guitarist episodes coming a lot of good stuff so i'm uh that's that's what people should check out because we'll get to nefarian that'll happen it'll be all right <laughs> Well, in the meantime, 2020-d.com. Like and subscribe. Go listen to Jason's other episodes, all of our other guests. YouTube.com slash the neuronic guitarist. <laughs> ben shamelessly plugging everything. <laughs> SiobhanCronin.com. If it's not taken, you should buy it and then ransom it back. Oh, I, I have it already. You do? 
Yeah. Are you sure? Does Anne Marie Cronin have all the passwords? No. Actually, I do. I bought it a long time ago. I have a website. It's just old and outdated because I unfortunately don't have time to maintain my own stuff. <laughs> so busy doing everything. You might else. know some people who can help out with that. That's true. I'll hit you up. Thank you, as always, for checking out this episode of 2020. Please visit 2020-d.com. Like and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on future episodes. This week's throwback clip is from episode number 65 featuring David Aberzies. Check it out. I, you know, I've always been bothered that, I, you know, Sony, like the Vitalogy record, the cassette that I have of the rough mixes eclipses the, the final record and the mastering. You know, it's like, it's so rich and so dynamic. And then in the mastering, it just got squashed too much, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Bowie, Dylan, Marley. You've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.